Hello everyone and welcome to this week's episode of Social Work Radio with me, your host Vince Beard. Once again we are joined by Matt B. Matt B, happy Christmas my friend and all the best, happy new year. How have things been in the uh, few weeks since you were last aboard the good ship SWR? Um, well, thank you for having me back. Um, yeah, things have been busy just with um, Christmas holidays and children. And I wrote about it in a magazine. It's just been childcare all the way for me. Um, so it's been really nice spending time with them. And it'll be nice to get back to work. Um, I'm still not at work yet. So my first day back is tomorrow. Nice. And um, we, we've got your deck. We've got it decorated for Christmas here for you to keep to keep the I Christmas vibe going. I don't want, I don't want going. any more Christmas. I'm done with Christmas. You've had, I I've bombarded get, you. I want to I've ambushed you with some more. I even got gave you a Christmas present as well as you arrived today. You did. I've got my Christmas card and yeah. a Christmas present. And I got um, you a book that said, Write a Friend. Yes. But you thought it said, Write a Fiend. It, I did think it said that, yeah. <laughs> Would you rather be? Would you rather be a friend or a fiend? Well, definitely a friend. Um, and a fiendishly good friend. And an average writer. Um, yes. <laughs> so, I almost imagine that in your gravestone there. <laughs> Friend and average writer. Average. Here lies Matt B, average writer. <laughs> he came, he went, he left some articles about social work. Um, he left a lot of love along the way, my friend. Yeah. So, but yeah, so all I've been doing is um, lots and lots of time with uh, my my young kids nice. um, so that has been nice but I say it has been pretty full on they, they're, they're at that age where it, it doesn't stop you're looking forward to going back to work yes <laughs> I, I, I can't wait because uh, um, I enjoy my work I just um, yeah I'm, I'm keen so tomorrow morning I'll be there first I'll be there as soon as the doors open I'll be, I'll be running in like the boxing day sales I'll be at my desk that's good though it's, it's good to have that enthusiasm for work even if it comes through a highly stressed Christmas <laughs> it's good to be looking because many people won't be looking forward to going back to work many people have started already and, and find yeah. it quite difficult yeah no I mean I wrote about it in that piece and yeah. I'm, I mean, I'm really lucky that I love my job so yeah. even when I'm not there I, I like to keep reading about it yeah. Um, so, yeah, very keen to to get back, and it's lovely to be back doing another podcast as well. Find a job you love, and you'll never work a day in your life. Do you think you've found that quite? Have you been close to that? I wouldn't go that far. It still feels like you work. like your job, <laughs> like not my- love on, the, on on a scale from <laughs> yeah. detest to love. You might be on about seven or eight uh, uh, fondness. Yeah, I'm getting there because nice. um, yeah, every job comes with bits you maybe you're not so keen on. So. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. I wouldn't say I love all the paperwork, but uh, but if you have more, if you have more good days than bad, then that is that's you you you're all right if that's the case. Yes, far yeah. more good days than bad. Yeah, absolutely. Like I said, I really enjoy what I do these days. So um, I enjoy that. I enjoy this, and um, I, my child, my childcare. If I can limit that to the point where I stay sane, that's quite good too. <laughs> I'm going to remember that. My childcare, if I can limit that to the point where I stay sane, that's good too. Yeah, I can't watch any more Peppa Pig or... or You're all peppered out. I am. And what's the other stuff they're into at the moment? Bluey? Yes. Oh, I, like, I like Bluey. I'm a, I like Bluey. I enjoy personally doing... I would never yeah. watch it if I was by myself, but when the kids have got Bluey on, I'm, I'm all right with that. You can't do three hours of Bluey, though. That's no, no, no. no you'd, be blue, you'd be blue after three hours of Bluey. You'd be turning blue. The ambulance would be out for you. Yeah. Anyway, this is all about me. How are you and what's, uh, what's the latest for you? Good. I had a very good Christmas. Uh, good time was had by all. Um, once again, I overindulged my children. I think we have to be careful as that as parents, and it's something I find that I... I am sometimes at risk of giving my children the Christmas I didn't have. Okay. 
And I sometimes realise afterwards when I look at all the stuff they aren't playing with, I'm like, ah, was I buying it for them or was I buying it for me? Uh, well, that's the that's the argument I was having in my household mm-hmm. for the whole month coming up to Christmas. Uh, but it wasn't. I wasn't buying it for me in the sense it was something I was used. Was it was it cathartic for me? Because you know, when I was younger, a very vivid memory of mine was looking through the Argos catalogue mm. and listing all the things I would like if my family had the money to get those things. And now it's like I kind of have to rein back a little bit from my children. So yeah, they had an amazing time, but I, I've resolved that. It's taught me a lesson I've learned from it. So my, my daughter's birthday is coming up in February. So rather than getting her something, I'm getting her an experience and I'm going to take her to Comic Con. So London, they have the, the, mm. the national, like the UK's Comic Con is in London in Excel, uh, at the Excel Centre at the end of May. So I've said, right, for this year... What I'm going to do is I'm going to get you an experience. So we're going to dress up. Um, she's into Pokemon, so I'm mm-hmm. going to be Professor Oak. Are you aware of Pokemon? No, well, I know of it. I've never seen uh, it. I'm, I'm, I'm going to dress up Professor Oak. She's going to be uh, she's going to be Misty, and we're just uh, we're just debating what my uh, girlfriend's going to dress up as. My daughter wants her to dress up as a Pokemon. I think it might be a bit much. We're debating, should she be a Pokemon? I'm thinking about Team Rocket. So this, but if you don't know about Pokemon... But is this like a, con- a conference thing that you go to? Full of, I mean, conference might be the wrong word, but... It is. Yeah, it is. That's, a com- that's what Con stands for. It's a comic conference. And do you travel there in character? Well, no, because I'll be driving. I'll be driving down that's the M1, it, and I'm not. I'm not. I mean, look, I'm a safe driver. But if I was, if I did happen to get into an accident, I wouldn't like to explain why I'm dressed up as a Pokemon trainer. Why my daughter's dressed up as a Pokemon trainer. My girlfriend is in the front seat, dressed up as Jigglypuff. Mm. That might cause accidents. Well, to the, be honest, the police arriving would probably jump to some conclusions about fault, wouldn't they? <laughs> <laughs> let's move on let's move on so it was a good Christmas and that's I've learned I've learned a lesson I've learned a lesson don't buy too many things so in future it's going to be experiences because that's how I live my life that's how I live my life is I'd rather have experience than things so I'm not sure why I don't pass on that same ethos to my children um, listeners viewers this will be a show that you'll catch on YouTube um, hope you've had a wonderful Christmas as well thank you for all your messages thank you for continuing to engage with us over the Christmas period obviously you've commented on lots of the articles we've had out over at mysocialworknews.com and on our Facebook page and on our Instagram and Twitter and on my LinkedIn um, so happy Christmas good luck to all you all throughout 2024 and uh, many happy returns so Matt should we uh, crack on and talk about this week's podcast topic are you ready to do this? yeah let's get to it right so our Topic this week is social workers are far more valuable than we believe ourselves to be. Now, this topic comes off the back of an article that we published um, last week, which had the title, Social Workers Predicted to be Amongst Most In-Demand Employees of 2024. Some research that came out from the recruiter, Hayes, said that social workers will be amongst the most in-demand employees of 2024 due to the increased and complex care needs across the UK. The, uh, the quote from the chief executive of Hayes says, The roles featured on our list are at the top of employers' wish lists up and down the country as many struggle not only to attract staff but also to retain them due to high competition for skills. And I was thinking, Matt, you know, I was looking at this and I was thinking, you know, this chimes with what we know already about the 20% vacancy rate. You and I and our, you know, we've had over you know, close to 30 years social care experience between the two of us. We've obviously seen this. We know that, you know, social workers are in demand. But as a profession, 
do we know just how valuable we are? What do you think? Do you think as social workers, we know our worth? Um, I think it's really individual. So some social workers clearly know mm-hmm. what they're worth. Um, and this is, I mean, we'll probably get into this later. It can, yeah. it can make the power dynamics quite difficult in teams, depending on whether everyone in the team is, is aware of that. So I think some people really struggle with that and some yeah. people are quite assertive with that. Um, I think culturally, in terms of the whole profession, I think we have a tendency to get walked over a lot. So we will, if you think about someone who really knows their worth, mm-hmm. they'll be paid correctly, they'll have the right paying conditions, they'll be treated with that kind of respect. And actually we have a culture of working much more, or we work for free. Um, <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, yeah. I mean, what does that say about how we value yeah. ourselves if we'll give our time away freely, which we do. Um, so yeah, I think it's going to be a really interesting issue. It's hard to cover in one kind of summary at the beginning. But I'm really looking forward to exploring this in a bit more detail. That's why we have a full show, my friend. Um, you said there about the, the vacancy rate. Obviously, I discussed <coughs> it as well. The latest figures. So um, in the UK, we have uh, the Children's Social Work Workforce. That's a, that's, a, that's a mouthful, isn't it? The Children's Social Work Workforce, a double work, um, a double shift. This comes out of February, so we are due to get the update to this next month. But the last update, which came out on the 23rd of February 2023, it's a yearly update, it's an annual census, showed that one in five of all child protection or children's social work jobs in general was empty. It's a 20% vacancy rate. Is it similar in adult services? I know you don't work directly in frontline adult social work anymore, but is that a similar theme? Is, is adults Do adults struggle to recruit as badly as children's sectors do? Well, I've done some research. Oh, yeah, fire so away, my friend. You send the notes and I do a little bit of background work. So there is some statistics I've got here. Yeah. So apparently in adult services for social work, adult social workers, um, we're at 11.6% vacancy rate. But that's going up. So in 2020, it was 7.5%. Wow. That's a hell of a jump in three years. Yeah, then it was 9.5% in 2021, and we're now at 11.6%. So it's going up really quickly. What do you... Does it say why that is, or do you have a view on why that is? It doesn't say. I mean, COVID's probably had an impact in terms of... Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. We know that's really decimated. So the big issue in adult social care is actually the home support and domiciliary care workforce and residential care. So who's doing actual home support? There's massive problems there in terms of there's not enough staff Mm-hmm. to deliver the care so that's going to have a knock-on effect in terms of stress levels for social workers because as a social worker you're trying to get the care commissioned to look after people if you don't have the carers you're going to really really struggle i wrote about this in the magazine a couple of months ago there's a guy in northern ireland who basically um will be without care he's he, you know he could live at home but he can't because they haven't got the carers to go visit him so he'll his choice at that time was to go into a residential home even though he think he was 40 um, and he had some physical disabilities mm-hmm. and he was totally able to live independently at home with some support that wasn't available. So I think, you know, the actual adult social care workforce, it's 1.6 million staff. It's really big. Um, it's close to the size of the NHS and they've got 150,000 vacancies there. So, wow. Wow. <laughs> when you add it through that percentage, you think 11% when you think of the actual... Yeah. They get 150. Where are we going to find these people? Well, this is where um, 
you know, Brexit's really difficult. Yeah. And, you know, we were trying to get lots of workers from abroad. We still are. But in terms of the social workers who work in this sector, I think that probably explains a little bit why so many are leaving or the vacancy rate seems to be rising because what can you do? You, you come into this role to try and exactly. support people, but exactly. you, don't, you don't have the carers to commission. So that must be terribly stressful that you want to, you've got the funds, you've got the ability, you've got the will, but you simply do not physically have the staff to do that work. No, that's it. And I think that causes a lot of psychological harm for people because they come into the profession to help. And in theory, you can deliver that support, but in practice, you can't. And I think that puts a lot of a burden on someone. So that might be why we're seeing that. I mean, that's got a lot worse since COVID. So Mm -hmm. that might be why. Why has it got one since COVID, do you think? Um, I think, I'm not really sure, to be honest. I've gone into that, but I've read it enough times now in other places to gain. Yeah. This has been a predominant issue since COVID's really arrived. Is it, is it a case, do you think, of people reevaluating their careers, people maybe losing loved ones, people being scared of the impact on their health of having to go and do home visits? Is it a multitude of those things? We had a real problem in COVID itself. So in, in COVID, it, 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 at that time, there were real difficulties in uh, making sure everyone had the right PPE, that people were working in the right conditions. Yeah, I remember those times. The actual illness rate within home carers and yeah. in, in death rates actually were a lot higher than in the NHS, even though they were performing very similar roles. And that's, again, when we're talking about being valued, yeah. if you want to think about being valued, you know, home support workers are incredibly undervalued. Yeah, tell me about it. Um, and we could see that in COVID in terms of, the numbers who felt they still had to come to work in, in conditions that really weren't safe. Yeah. Um, so I think that has had a knock-on effect. So it's definitely, I mean, <clears throat> we, we often talk about this children's social work and adult social work, although they have similar, we work under the, under the same umbrella, they're very different roles mm. and very different issues. But our vacancy rate wouldn't seem to be anywhere near as high as what you were talking about at 20%. You mm. know, that really is astonishing um, when when you were sent through the notes, I thought that I was looking around. I couldn't find any comparison, but it was it, it, I couldn't find any of the professions it's high. with that. You know, um, so yeah, but it's not new. You know, no, one no, of the things no. one of the things on the notes was like, what, what's the reaction to it? My reaction when I saw this was, uh, I've read this before. Yes, you know, I, I it is creeping up. It's creeping up. Mm-hmm. It, it, it is creeping up. You know, percentage points by the year, but. It isn't new. There, there has always been this issue, and most of the concerns that we share, you know, they, they worsen. There's sometimes ebb and flow. There's a bit of an increase, but there is it is never fully solved. So we are in demand. I would say we are we are certainly in demand as social workers. You know, we are valuable, and if we know our worth, like you said, sometimes it'd be difficult. I think sometimes people can know their worth too much, which one can create a problem. Because I've certainly been the manager in some teams before mention no names here where some workers have had an attitude well i can just go and get a job tomorrow so you either have to tolerate my substandard practices or accept my time off or accept that i'm not going to answer the phone and do these visits or i can go i think that speaks more about the individual and the profession i think if you've got that mentality i think that's a, a personal i would say it's a defect or a flaw to be honest the other the other the person who was feeling that way may see it was a means of it was strong it was a way of protecting themselves but i think it can be difficult either way. certainly undervaluing yourself can be very difficult because you can be tread all over you can not know your worth and you can end up in dead-end jobs where you tread poorly equally i think we have to be careful about going too much the other way where you think you are superior um, to the extent where it impacts on the care that your clients receive but in general, 
do you think social workers are valued by employers, government and society? What do you think? Okay, so I think it's quite interesting. So I think from my personal experience, in terms of employers, on an individual level, most of the places I've worked, I'd say I felt valued by the manager, by the team around me. Person by person, whoever I met, I felt this person does value what I do. Good. Like it was quite rare for me to come across this situation where it wasn't. But culturally, when you put all these people together, I didn't feel valued. As a collective. As a collective. Something about when you put all these individual people <laughs> together, yeah, even yeah, though yeah, yeah. it's very hard to pin down, you go, we, we all actually quite like each other and we all get along and we all do a great job. But collectively, it goes wrong. Like you don't get the right. I mean, the thing that always made me feel really undervalued was the fact my time wasn't valued, like I could just be given things to do that Mm, would take so long to do. And he thought, well, if you actually valued what I was doing, you would make this easier for me to do or more efficient. Or if I said, you know what, this actually needs to be a bit better. So you're valued as a a worker, but not a person. Your personal time isn't valued. Uh, No, professional time. At the end of the day, if you you buy my time, you're buying, what, 37 hours of my time, in theory. Okay, so if you value that, you'd want to use that time as carefully as possible. And actually, you felt like you're not valuing this time at all because you can just give me anything you want to get done. Yeah. And because of the nature of the work, I think we do value ourselves, but we value our clients much more. Mm -hmm. And the issue is that you end up going, if I'm really going to express how much I value my clients to make sure they're okay. I have to do more than 37 hours work to get this <laughs> yeah, done. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And difficult. I think, and if you're a really caring employer, yeah. if you're very much valuing everyone, you would look at that and go, that's not right. Yes. And actually, that's not how it is. You know, it's, and it's hard to meet the person who's in charge of this to say you're the person who's doing this. Because actually, if you talk to every individual, they'll go, well, that's not right. But how many hours are they working? When you meet the person in charge, how many extra hours a week are they working? A bit more research for you here. Oh, so, oh so, give me more. So that's from some studies that were done by the, um, some of the universities around Manchester. I think it was the University of Manchester did this. They surveyed 5,500 social workers. Mm-hmm. They found actually the further you go up the management chain, the more hours they work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're that's... actually working more hours than social workers. So if you look at a director of children's services, probably working 60, 70 hours a week? They're, they're, well, social workers work in about 10 hours extra yes. a week. Yeah, yeah. And this actually got worse the higher up you went. So managers might be 10, 11, 12, service managers. So the yeah. higher up you, so once you get to director level, you are working a lot. I imagine it plat- I imagine it actually comes down at director level. I don't know. It didn't, it didn't break it down to that level. But in terms of in the sort of the ones that are involved in frontline decisions and yeah. actually in the departments. But I think that's the culture. That's that thing. Like if you're if you're in a senior position and you're doing that, you might not see that it's particularly wrong that everyone else it's is just doing accepted. it as well. It's yeah, just, yeah, yeah, it's just accepted. And I think that at heart does undervalue your your staff and also their personal lives. Because what? How are they going to have a personal life if they're spending all their time working and then trying to recover from working? So why go up the management chain? And this is this is something I've <clears throat> thought many times. Obviously, I've been a manager before. I've been an assistant team manager, but. My managerial role, I kind of started out by doing a favour. Sounds mm-hmm. strange, that, but like, you know. But loads, loads of managers do. Yeah, yeah, it was literally yeah. the, 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 um, the service manager, really good guy, Ben, hell of a decent guy. You know, we needed to fill a, a managerial vacancy quite short notice. He's like, you know, can you help us out here? I was like, I'll give it a shot. I didn't see it myself. We, you know, we used to speak. You were quite surprised when you found out I'd become a manager, weren't you? Yes. <laughs> surprised being probably a polite way of putting it. <laughs> You've moved to the dark side. Uh, yeah, yeah. But I, I, yeah. I liked it. But 
it wasn't for me long term. And yes, look, there was a wage increase. There's the prestige that comes with it. But the best thing about it was the experience. It made me, it made me a better social worker for seeing what managers do. Yeah. Certainly did. But if I was to break down the hours that I was working additionally, I was earning less per hour on a higher rate because I was working more. And I just, given I had no will to progress, I didn't move further. I'm just not sure it was for me. And and I think that's the point. I think in terms of being valued, I think individually, Mm. yes, people do value each other, but the system that we work within undermines that. And I think that's the core issue. Does our society value us? Do societies value social workers? Let's, if we were to compare ourselves to nurses, firefighters, the police force? No, not not in the same way. But then I don't think society, it's like anything. Most people in society don't have contact with social workers. They don't think about social workers. Yes. It's not particularly in the media. So the only other, the only time they're probably going to think about it is when something goes wrong. Because that's the only other yeah. time. And we're you're only going to get a bad story. Yeah, yeah. So, And I don't think that's unique to social work. I think that's about pretty much any profession. You know, you don't generally think about it unless you're directly involved with it. Um, nurses in particular have a slightly different take on it because of COVID and all lot, you know, what we went through there, we've really now valued healthcare system and professionals in that field much more. Do you think that's kept though? Or do you not think that's waned? Do you, do you think that will sustain? Probably not. Well, it won't, won't sustain indefinitely, so it will wait. And I don't know if it has Because the narrative of COVID's changing more and more, isn't it? You're getting more and more people who are coming out against vaccines and the mandates and you know the the i'm not saying that the whole narrative's changed i think more people are still in support of what happened but you are i i am certainly seeing a lot more messages coming out into the mainstream and being more widely accepted that were once seen as conspiracy theories about yeah, COVID. But I think if you remember the public, you have a very simple narrative in your head about a nurse. Help for heroes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you go, you make sick people better. Yes. You know, this has to be a good thing. You have to be a good person. If you are a member of the public and you don't know much about social work, it's divisive. Well, what, what, what messages do you have? You have yeah. messages. You've got TV programs about nurses. You've got stories about them. You probably know a nurse because the profession is so much wider. And certainly you've, you've, you've had support from a nurse. Yeah. With social work being a targeted service, it generally, you know, particularly in children's services, the vast majority of people do not want a social work. It is not no, voluntary. <clears throat> people don't know what to make of it. Like, I mean, we've just had Christmas and, um, you know, we've, we've met up with people. We've met new people because our child's just started school so we've been along with her to some things and we've met some other parents so it's lots of chances to meet new adults that you've you know not met before and it's interesting I've had those conversations with people over Christmas what do you do and I've gone social work and you can see them go right how do I take this what do I (laughs) say and you think I don't know what's in your head like I don't know if I was a nurse or a doctor I would understand probably probably what you're thinking but as a social worker it's really dependent on what their personal experience is and this is why it's quite common for people to lie about being a social worker. I'm not necessarily lie, but not to tell the truth. I, I know many social workers who, when asked that question with, by strangers, will say, I work for the council and hopefully leave it there because you roll the dice. Yeah, you know, If somebody's had a bad experience with social workers, they've had a, a bad experience. Mm. And those bad experiences are potentially far more common given the involuntary nature of it. But this is, the th- this is where... We're going to get to it, but I think you need a union and you need people who are going to talk more highly about what social workers do because there's so much great work social workers do, but the public hear nothing about it. And a lot of it is about harm that never happens Mm -hmm. because of what social workers have done. 
And because that doesn't really get reported and we don't really talk about it a great deal, it doesn't get attached to the social work profession and the public's mind. You know, it's only about harm that does happen that we fail to prevent. And that means that it is tainted mm. in terms of how we view it. And I'm not saying it shouldn't be reported because, of course, it should. Um, but I think that's what we're missing. If you want to sort of think, how does social work get that public recognition? How do you get that message across to um, the society? You need a, a body to actually um, put that message out. But we've got that. We've got the social work union. We've got Barswer, who will tell us they have twenty thousand members, and you know they've got a lot of. I quite often see them when there's a there's a social work news story. You'll get people from Barswer on on the television. And um, we've got this, Matt. Have we? <laughs> so, pretty, I mean, pretty sure there is an organisation that exists called Basra. Otherwise, I don't know who I'm paying my forty pound a month to. I know of it. You know of it. People I'm a member of it. I yeah, am a member of Basra. People listen to the podcast will know of it, but who you know, people who aren't social workers, what do they know of it? You know, it's look. It's, I'm going to say it as it is. I'm yeah. not going to hold back on this one. I, I was trying to be diplomatic there, but no, I'm not going to say it. I am bitterly disappointed by my union. I'm bitterly disappointed by my association of social workers. Um, I've had forums out with Basra before, some members of Basra that I may have not always got on as well as I could have with, and I, I believe that's on me because of my frustrations. And sometimes I think because I know some people in Basra and I've been quite close with them and I've worked with them before, I think that can sometimes make me pull my punches, but I'm not going to do that, Matt. I'm going to say it as it is. I am bitterly disappointed by a union and our association they have a very safe and steady way of doing things that they do not deviate from. How many times have you heard Baswa, Matt, say, Baswa, call on the government? How many times have you heard Baswa call on the government in your 15 years as a social right. worker? People don't bother calling... Right, calling on the government, don't do it. Open letters, don't <laughs> yeah, bother, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. Marches or whatever. Like, these things aren't effective. They don't change anything. It doesn't make a difference. Even if you've got 100 signatories of that open letter? What does, it, what does it matter? Exactly. What does it matter? Exactly. You know, and this is the problem. One of the questions said, does the government value social workers? Well, probably not. But at the end of the day, why should the government actually do that? Because the government's busy doing whatever's in the headlines. It's always responding and firefighting and working with whatever's in the headlines is what... They've got bigger problems. They've got bigger problems If you want the, the government to value social workers, it takes you back to that union position yeah. of who's making the government care. What about a focus group? Do you not think a Basra focus group or a steering committee? A steering committee. Could a steering committee not get things sorted out, mate? No, well. <laughs> steering committee. You're just, you've just got a stick and you're prodding me. So, I'm just firing out all these buzzwords. Yeah. But you, you, right, I say this facetiously, but these things, if you're, in a, if you're high up in Basra, these committees, that's, that's, that's what Basra is. Basra is open letters, campaigns, that essentially mean, can you tweet these things and do a hashtag? Steering committees, focus groups, uh, tweets and calling on the government to action and a survey that's sent out once, once a year where the views of social workers are regurgitated. I've been a member of Basra for the best part of a decade. I've been on and off, but I've been probably, if you combine them probably over, over 10 years. There's a couple of times where I've, my membership's lapsed and I haven't rejoined because I've become frustrated. I would be hard-pressed to find one meaningful difference they've ever made to my life as a social worker or the life of anyone I've known. Am I being cynical there, or is that just the way it is? I mean, I'm finding... I'm being careful, because I don't want to go in too hard on Basel, because I've got no experience. I mean, I was never a member of them. I never actually joined, um, because the person who was going to recruit me just said, here's how much you pay, and 
I can't remember anything else that they actually told. And I said, I didn't understand what the advantage was. It wasn't sold to me in a particular, it was just everyone else is in it, you need to be in it. And I have a collective action. Yeah, I was sort of, yeah, didn't really fit my mentality very well. But um, in any event, I don't see it being effective. I mean, I've got to be fair, because I used to write for the... the, the As did I, as did I. I was Um, on my local Baswa, I was a member of my local Baswa branch in the northeast. No, I used to write for the magazine, but it got got into difficulty when um, people found out I wasn't actually a member of Baswa. (laughs) I was writing for them. Um, amazing, yeah. amazing. <laughs> I can imagine that would be a problem, potentially be a problem. No, I did. I wrote a really, uh, uh, an in-depth feature. I'll tell you this story. So I wrote an in-depth feature all about religious views and things like that. And how we need to take them into account when we work with people. Very fair point. And I had some people to interview and I interviewed some academics and they said, this is great. We should put a conference together around this. Right. Um, or a seminar. And I thought, Rice. Exactly the and opposite then, of what you want to do. Yeah. yeah. And then they said, let's let's put this together. And then they mentioned to me, I said, oh, I'm not a member of Buzzword. And they, as soon as they said that, they said, oh, we're not doing it then. Because um, I was Whoa. just a freelance work writer yeah. doing a, a feature for them. But um, I think this is the problem. I mean, Buzzword, my experience of it, and I'm going to be really careful on this, it seemed to be very inward looking. It is. It and is, it didn't it really seem to connect with the wider world and no. what you need is, an, is a union that actually will connect with the wider world to say here's the issue, issue, issues in social work and here's what we would recommend the actions that need to be taken and to communicate that in a meaningful way like open letters don't do that you know um, and this is again I mean we talk about I've written about this as well the chief social workers you know these roles I'm still unclear as to what they do and I mean they meant to intercede with the government uh, they're meant to actually make some meaningful changes for us. We've been around for like 10 years. I thought, you know, we've been in post for a while. Hard to quantify what it's actually changing in terms of does the government respect social workers or value social work? What's actually the outcome of these positions? I'm not really sure. I, I'm going to say something here. And I, I think a damning indictment of our association and our unions, and our own appointed people, is the fact that the person in my 11 years as a social worker who has made the most change in our profession isn't even a trained social worker. I would hazard that's Josh McAllister. Josh McAllister, and thinking about children specifically, Josh McAllister set up Frontline, which revolutionised the way that social workers are recruited. It revolutionised the model. It brought on a new model of training, a new breed of cohorts and essentially a brand new way of doing things. I've known several people who've come through the frontline model, many of whom are very good friends of mine, a man in particular called Brad, um, very still very close to him, one of my best male friends in social work. Then Josh McAllister goes on to lead the care review, which is going to have significant changes to the way that child protection social work is done. This man isn't a trained social worker. He comes from a teaching background. But his mother is a social worker and he saw that he could implement the Teach First model, Mm -hmm. which was already training teachers via Fast Tank Roof and bring that into social work. And he became a passionate for social work and it's obviously led into working with other things. For me, it's a sad indictment. Not necessarily that we don't have the skills within social work. We don't have the ability. 
that we don't have a vessel to steer that. Because like you say, many, and it's not just Basra, it's not just a social work union, but many of our organisations within social work are very insular. I think we can harbour an us versus them mentality. We can hunker down. Everybody else is to blame. Oh, we're not going to work with the government because they're conservative. Well, the Tories have been in power for a decade and a half now. What are you going to do? You have to deal with that. I remember once I got significant criticism from sectors from my own profession because I wrote a piece for the Daily Mail. I wrote an article for the Daily Mail which was about challenging the the, um, portrayal of social workers on a popular British soap opera called EastEnders. And people, we should have wrote for The Guardian instead. My position was, well, if I'm writing for The Guardian, whose mind am I going to change? Because everybody who's reading The Guardian's always going to be, already going to be listening yeah. to me. We can't just have an echo chamber where we speak to ourselves and speak to people that agree with but us. Even, but even if you write for The I mean, I've written for The Guardian. If you write for The Guardian, yeah. even though you think I'm already writing towards people who probably have a similar viewpoint. Exactly. It's ama- but it's amazing how much fighting there is in the comments underneath the article. Because actually, within social work, it is insular, but everyone seems to be fighting with everyone else. But but all all that time we're spent fighting amongst ourselves, what are we not doing? Making meaningful change. This is my frustration. This is why I rarely engage on Twitter, and I rarely reply to any comments online. Because for me, every single second we waste debating amongst ourselves about the right thing to say, what's beyond the pale right now, what's the correct terminology to use. We're not talking about, obviously, things that are blatantly offensive, sexist, racist, and so on. We're talking about, oh, well, you've got to say this in a certain way. You shouldn't be representing social work. You shouldn't be saying this. You shouldn't be doing that. Establishing who's who holds authority within a very small sphere. Every second we spend doing that as a second away from our personal lives, our clients, our work, and making a difference in our profession. Well, <clears throat> i give you an example of this from a couple of years ago. I think you may have spoken to the person involved with it, actually. There's a panorama undercover social work. I did an interview with her for a, a, a rival magazine. Yeah, I think... I did, actually. I had a good connection with her. I knew her personally. We spoke quite a lot. Yeah, so the undercover social worker. The undercover social worker. So this is a case in points. So this would have been about 2016, I It think. was 2016, well remembered. Yeah. So... Um, she went with the name of Vicky, I think. But yeah. see, she she went and worked. I've got to be her. careful not to use her real name, but yeah, yeah Vicky, was, Vicky, Vicky was the name. That, that was she went what under. it was reported. So it was she, in Birmingham. So she went undercover into that children's service. Yeah, it was Birmingham Children's Services. And this got portrayed on Panorama, and it showed all the things that social workers had been saying. These are the problems that we experience. Mm-hmm. It highlighted really clearly all about some infighting, some confusion about what was meant to be going on, real difficulties. I think they had a multi-agency room with police officers, but they couldn't work out how they could share information. And it highlighted all the difficulties and had social workers talking unguardedly about Mm -hmm. these are the problems I'm having and I'm really struggling and I can't cope. And this went out on primetime television Mm -hmm. and it was an opportunity to show society this is what social workers do and this is how difficult it is. And this is the support that they need to be able to actually protect vulnerable people in society. When that went out, the whole social work community went in uproar, not about we need to actually highlight this and get better support, but about a social worker going undercover. This was the big issue. And social workers fell out with each other and there was loads of conflict around no one should know. Social workers violated the trust of other social workers. And just basically it was a big free-for-all with everyone fighting with each other. And I think that's one of the key issues is that, you know, it's about having a unified voice. And actually, there's a lot of dissent within social work about not just what we're trying to say, but how do we say it and what the rights and wrongs are. And again, I wrote about that as well. And I just went, how disappointing that 
we've missed an opportunity here to actually highlight the things that the programme was meant to try and highlight. You know, we didn't actually make good on that. So I think some of this is about us ourselves as social workers and how we communicate with each other. I had a, uh, I had a front row seat to that story. Um, the reason I connected with the social worker who went undercover was before the TV programme went out. I, I moderate um, a large social work group on Facebook called Social Work World. We've got about 55,000 members. People started outing this social worker. People started posting posts. Her, her own team members felt aggrieved and people that she worked alongside while she was stationed in Birmingham as an agency social worker started outing her. So I was taking these posts down, but I found that she was also a member of the group and I messaged him and said, just by the way, just to let you know, I'm not sure this is safe for you. People are naming you as this person. She says, you know, thank you for this. Yes, I am this person. And I said, look, it's up to you, but I'm certainly not wanting a favour back because I've done this. But if you would like, given your side of the story, given what's coming out, I'm happy to speak to you anonymously. She agreed to that. We ran the story that day. So that, as again, this was when I used to work for a different magazine. Same magazine. You used to work for them as well. That's how I met you, Matt, because we both used to write for them. So... I ran that story, so I had a front row seat to not only what she was going through, but also that very, very strange insular mentality. Because you're right, that that documentary, that for me, that showed nothing that was alien to any social worker okay. in the world. That that for me was yes, let's show these things, let's make change. But what was our profession's reaction? Rather than to make change, it was to isolate her, push her out. I had a similar experience to me in a certain way. You know, I used to write under a different name and do a podcast under a different name. And I I had a very, very high figure, very high profile figure very quickly. I had millions of um, shares and likes and engage. I had a massive reach due to content that I used to share and write about. For a while, I was kind of the, the in thing. I was popular. Everybody wanted to like me and everybody got on well with me and had lots of offers. Most of the well-known figures in social work I've had dealings with and I've got to know over time. When it became quite clear that I was not going to bend my agenda to other people and not use my platform to advance their ideas, well, actually, this was just me and I was writing what I felt like and sharing what I felt like because that's what made it authentic. Um, I no longer became fashionable and then I was othered it can happen. Um, we're going to end on this topic, though. We've talked about these issues. We've gone far and wide. You know, we've had some very interesting conversations about some related areas there. What can we do to increase our professional self-worth? Now, we've called on Basra, and that's one. We've called on Basra. How ironic. <laughs> How ironic. Basra calling the government. We are calling on Basra. Um, what can we do to increase our professional self-worth? Collectively, but also as individuals. If we've got anyone watching this that perhaps has low self-esteem, has imposter syndrome, has difficulties with self-sabotage and doubt, um, you're a confident man, Matt. What do you do to increase your self-worth? But what can we do that individually? How can we do that individually? And how can we also do that collectively? Well, individually is easier. Is um, it? Oh, tell me about this. Is it? Well, it is because how can you? How can you say collectively we'll all do this? You know, but in well, collectively, <coughs> collectively, it's e collectively is easier because you can say but you don't have to bear the responsibility. You are not. The, you don't have to. Fast, you don't have to do the hard work. Individually, you have to do the hard work. Co collectively, we can't publish a single article in social work without lots of issues coming out from the other end of it. Tell me about so, it. So individually, yeah. you know, I think it is about. And this is where it's tricky because it is about valuing yourself yeah. and recognising, I think you've written some really interesting things about this recently, there's only one of you, 
your family obviously values you and yeah, yeah, you, yeah. you can be replaced at work but you can't be replaced at home so it's really living that message out and going do you know what that's that's true yeah uh, there is only one of you and years from now what you're struggling with today at work won't really seem so important no. anymore but your health and welfare will be yeah and we want to be healthy and present in our lives in our own lives and lives of those people um who we hold close and to do that it is going to be saying no to certain things at work yes the power of no exactly and that's where it's quite interesting as it as it moves from the individual into that immediate team that can be quite difficult because then if you say no who's going to have to do that work and all these things and that's that's where it starts to get tricky but to a point I'm going to use the word selfish, but I don't really think it is selfish. It is about saying, I will do this and I won't do that. Because if I do that, it will actually damage me. And I need to take care of myself. So you establish worth by establishing boundaries. Yes. I like it. So you may have to be flexible on that boundary every now and then because yeah. the nature of the job is. Yeah, of course, of you course. Know? You have to have a good radar for what's an emergency and what isn't. Exactly. And you can't treat everything as an emergency. And if everything's as a, if everything's an emergency, nothing then is. you... Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. If everything's a priority, nothing is. And so it is about setting down those your own personal boundaries. I've, I've done quite well with that in my own career, I yes. think, in part because of... Before I became a social worker, I did lots of genuinely really undervalued jobs so lots of cleaning car valeting car park attendant stuff where you you could just lose your job uh, you just turn up and you didn't have a job yeah. um, and you really had to fight hard to get paid so with a couple of years of that behind me when I was social work I just didn't really work overtime for free because it wasn't in my my psychology by that point it was like no this isn't how I work so I'm quite rare as a social worker so I got really kind of conditioned to work in quite a healthy way before I became a social worker. Because you came with that work ethos and that work ethic. Yeah, because it just wasn't natural to me to give my time away for free because I'd have to fight so hard to get paid. Is the paid is the other side to that, though, that the hours you have to give, you have to make sure you work hard, though? That's the flip side of that, isn't it? Because if you're going to say to your employer, well, okay, I'm only going to do eight hours a day, you'd better make sure those eight hours are good. I don't expect it goes without saying who's who's putting in a bad hour's work you know if, if you might wow. <laughs> no but you but you might do you want a list <laughs> you Turn might, some names you might, <laughs> no, you might end up thinking like oh I didn't don't feel I got the best out of that hour but you you should be trying to get the best out of every yeah, hour yeah but you should be but that's is everyone who is it how many social workers have you met who aren't it? most social workers I've known are working really quite hard and as effectively, if they're not working effectively, it tends to be around the culture and the system set of the work. And that's what I would say. I, I don't think it's hard work. I think it's effective work. I think we can... Look, I'm a big advocate for time box. I'm a big advocate for not being on your phone. I'm a big advocate for focused work. I genuinely believe, even though you know, it can sometimes cause problems and because there's people that can argue against me, but I, I've got to stick to my ideals. I genuinely believe that there are basic practices and productivity that we could instill in most workplaces that would drastically increase productivity. I do. I just think mm-hmm. there are a lot of. I look around offices and teams, or a lot of basic things people aren't doing that they shouldn't. If we just instilled some better habits. I think we could do better. And that's kind of what I mean by that. Not necessarily the onus on the individual, yeah. but are people being taught how to make the most effective use of their time? 
Yeah, I, th- I think people do do that. But I think if you don't end up achieving the work, it's generally because what we're talking about. There's there. too much. There's yeah, too yeah, much yeah. or yeah. actually is a really inefficient way to work. Like if you're copying data and data and data and writing yeah. the same thing over lots of different forms, why is that down to you to have a heart attack over? You know? And we should end on that fatalistic point. <laughs> um, I like it. Boom, mic drop. Um Listeners and viewers, because obviously this will be going out on YouTube too. Um, thank you ever so much for tuning in. Um, as always, if you can check out the stories we refer to over at mysocialworknews.com, check out our social media channels. On uh, just search social work news. We're on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Um, do consider subscribing to this podcast if it's your first time, and also do leave a review. If you leave a review, we will read it out on next week's show. We'll be back next week. Where Matt's back next week. I think the Christmas day decorations may still be up we'll see we'll see if i've (laughs) taken them down yet um until then it's goodbye from me and it's goodbye from me